But I am saying I give myself a little more room, you know, and I trust, if I'm going to trust God, like I can trust God to, um, I can trust Jesus to help me through bad theology, you know. But I have to allow myself room for bad theology because if you don't consider all the, if you don't consider, I guess there's maybe not enough time in life to consider everything, but I think you've got to consider multiple options in order to have some sort of real faith. If you just pick the first one and say, okay, this is it, you might be right, you know, but but I got to believe that it's a conversation that Jesus is guiding me through this whole conversation. You hold the reins on the sun and the moon Like horses driven by kings You cover the mountains, the valleys below With the bread of your mighty wings Oh, treasures of wisdom and things to be known are hidden inside your hands. And in this fortunate turn of events, you've asked me to be your friend. Happy almost 2019. We are in the throes. I guess we're in the death throes of the end of 2018. And I really hope that your Thanksgiving was good and that your holiday season leading up to Christmas as well is going well. And for those of you not in the States, I really hope that that one random Thursday that we all celebrate over here and eat copious amounts of food was just as good for you as it was for so many of us. So welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm Seth and I'm still your host. And I'm blown away by the continued support on Patreon. Every week it seems like someone new joins the community and, and I am humbled by that, by you supporting the show. You literally make this happen and you make it possible for it to happen. And and in 2019, I really think if, if we can continue at the pace we're going, that, that we're going to meet each other face to face, that we can have some live episodes, that we can do just some different things, some neat things. And all of that is being planned. And so thank you to each and every single one of you. And please hear me when I say I appreciate you. So I have to think that you looked at the episode of the show before you downloaded. And so John Mark McMillan, is someone that, if I'm honest, earlier on in my Christianity and earlier on in my, I like to listen to songs on the radio, never really spoke to me. And then as I as I deconstructed my faith and as I deconstructed what God and church and religion is, kept being drawn to his music and others like him because they they were dealing with issues that mattered. They weren't just la di da pa in the sky music. It was it was music. I guess music with intention is the best way to say it. And so I am very pleased. And very happy to introduce to some of you, maybe for the first time, John Mark McMillan, and to many of you, kind of the voice behind the songs that we love and behind the songs that I know sit in the hearts of many of us. And so here we are, a conversation with John Mark McMillan about music, about language and metaphor, about God, and about why honest conversations through music and honest syncopations through music are really one of the things that can help us tremendously daily if we'll allow it. And so here we go, John Mark McMillan.
John Mark McMillan. I'm so happy that you're on the show, man. Um, I so normally when I put things out into Twitter, uh, nothing happens, and so when you when you messaged me back, I was I'm, I was excited, ecstatic, and uh, and so thanks for coming on to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Yeah, man, I'm stoked to be here. Thank you for having me. So for those unfamiliar with you, um, and I do this based on feedback, I thought at one time when I interviewed Walter Brueggemann that everyone was familiar with him, and then I was, I was wrong based on feedback because I bypassed it. And so I'm realizing that um, many of the people that I talk to, the first experience that people have with them, and so their voice, is, is today. So uh, tell me a bit about yourself, kind of your upbringing, kind of what brought you from, you know, five-year-old John Mark McMillan to... Well, however old you are now, <laughs> mid, mid, mid 30s. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, 39 uh, so, year so old. Kinda, so kind of that, that story in brief. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's see. At five years old, <laughs> I lived with my parents on um, what seemed like a commune, but it wasn't a commune. They worked jobs and things like that. But they lived on a farm in a Christian community with a bunch of other um, uh, believers and probably about around when I was around seven years old, they left the community. I think there was some, I don't know the details. I think there was some sort of, you know, blow up or implosion or something. They sold the land and we moved mm-hmm. um, into uh, just a regular neighborhood. Um, but those are my earliest memories of uh, music and church, you know, were sort of sort of a kind of charismatic hippie Jesus movement type. <laughs> you know, it was, I remember being pretty exciting, you know, at, at five, you mentioned five. Um, but yeah, so my dad uh, went into business for a while, went into sales for a little while, but he always felt called to some sort of ministry. So he started a church. I can't remember exactly how old I was, but um, he left his job and started a church. And so um, that sort of became our life, you know, was church and um, he's pastoring a small church and trying to take care of his family. And yeah. so, um, you know, we had guys playing on the worship team. They're probably all in their forties. Um, they loved sort of the classic rock, you know, the old school type of stuff. And they would teach me in my teen years, we'd sit out, um, my dad's church was in a, um, a strip mall. And so we would sit out on the loading dock sometimes and they would teach me classic rock songs on the guitar. Um, and that's some of my earliest memories playing music. Probably, I was probably 14 or 15 years old when a good friend of mine stopped by the house. Um, I remember him, uh, his mom dropped him off and he had this, uh, tiny little guitar amp and a red Fender, uh, Squire Stratocaster. And I was like, what's, what's this magic? What's going on here? You know? And he came in the house, he went up to my room and he played, uh, all the songs from the radio, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, R.E.M., Counting Crows, the kind of stuff that you know we were listening mm-hmm. to as teenagers on the radio. And I was captivated, you know, by his playing. It was, uh, it seemed like an illusion, you know. He was playing, he's my age, he's my friend, and music was coming out of his fingers, you know. Real music, too, you know. It was not just strumming chords, it was like stuff from the radio that I liked, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought, whoa. I want to be a part of this, this music stuff here, this guy is creating, like maybe I could do that. Um, I wasn't good at sports. Um, I was really into drawing comic books and I'd learned 
that that was not impressive to the ladies. And so I thought my <laughs> ticket might be this music stuff, you know. So I dug up my dad's old guitar, his old Samick guitar, and he had a little amp. And I bought magazines at the drugstore and learned how to play songs from the back of magazines at the drugstore. And that's really where I started playing. Uh, I was in bands for a while. I played in church some. They were happy for me to play in church. I think that um, they thought that, you know, would keep me connected. You know, mm-hmm. I had um, long hair. You know, it was classic 90s, shaved underneath. Long, uh, nine-inch nail t-shirt every day. Shaved underneath. So you mean yeah. like um, like Zach Morris kind of thing happening or, or something different than that? No, it was shaved. It was sort of like you would shave the bottom part and then the hair would hang over it. It was like yeah. if you put it up in a bun, it was kind <laughs> of mohawk vibe. They kind of do it again now, but not quite... The way we yeah. did it, you know. Um, yeah, we're we're similar in age, and I. Yeah. Well, first off, well, I mean, you can see that's never going to happen again, and, and for me anyway, with the lack of hair that I have. But I don't miss that um, that stage of life. That and uh, what is it, MF MFG Jabot? When you combine the two, those oh, two, yeah. that, those two. So I don't not not a fan of any of that. Um, so, so, yeah. So you said that they tried to keep you engaged with church that way. So that that didn't work for you. Well, no, it, I I don't know. Um, I think they were just happy that I was engaged in church. Because for the longest time, my dad being the pastor, of course, you feel like, I'm definitely not going to get excited about church. My dad's the pastor, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to express any interest here. you know. Um, and I would sit on the back with my friends. and I think they worried about me. I looked like someone who was into drugs, but I never was. Um, <laughs> a lot of my friends were. It just didn't interest me. They didn't like my musical choices, you know. And the '90s were very, very dark. I think sometimes we forget how dark the '90s were. I do mm-hmm. anyway. And I go back and I listen to a lot of the music from the '90s and a lot of the dialogue from the '90s. If you go back and watch that documentary about a son, where it's Kurt Cobain talking about his life in his own words, you're like, "Whoa!" It was mm-hmm. a very dark time. Like we have. Um, I mean, there are terrible things happening now. Um, you know, you think about shootings and that kind of stuff. It was awful. I mean, a lot of ter- a lot of terrible things happening now. But in the '90s, it was very popular to hate yourself and to mm-hmm. hate other people. I don't I don't feel like self hate is a trend. You know, I mean, you run into people who probably hate themselves, but like self hate, suicide. You know, like it was trendy, at least in in my circles, to not love life and to hate yourself and other people and to be depressed was not just something that people sort of dealt with. It was uh, popular, you know? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. weird, and I, I think... And it it sounds super weird now when you try and explain it to younger millennials. Yeah, like, we were, it was cool to be depressed, you know? Yeah. And, no, um, I can... Yeah, I relate to that. I agree. Um, yeah, I grew... We're, we're about 18 months in age yeah, yeah. difference. Oh, and cool. so, yeah, like, I, um, I recently found uh, my old CD collection. I was going through a box in the basement because I decided nothing in here I need... So I should just throw it all out. But in there was just a treasure trove of yeah, Toad the Wet Sprocket yeah. and um, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, which I played again and really enjoyed that yeah. old stuff. Uh, but one album that I found specifically was Stabbing Westward. And as I listened to the entire album, um, I don't know if you ever listened to them yep. or not, I was like, man, this is... Well, it, it places me back emotionally to where I was uh-huh. at like 16, 17-year-old yeah. at the time, and it's heartbreaking. And I had to turn it off. I was like, I'm not not ready to deal with all these again. Whatever emotions <laughs> were there, they've been repressed, and I don't feel like dealing with them again, so I'm just going to hit stop and 
turn back on K-Love yeah. or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how do you get from barely engaged in church to writing the type of music that you do now? So, I mean, the music that you write now is, is I, would, I would say for me, overtly spiritual. I'm not sure if Christian even is the right term for it. I don't like the word Christian music. Um, but it is overtly spiritual and religious for me at least. So how do you, how do you navigate from A to B? Yeah. So gosh, that's a really good question. I don't know that it's that simple. I think I, um, there was a moment I I really struggled in my faith throughout my teen years, you know, and there was a moment when I just decided that I was gonna try to believe in God as a teenager, um, where I wasn't sure what I believed. And, you know, um, I was like, you know what, I'm going to try this whole faith thing. I mean, that sounds weird, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but what's really interesting, without, with you know, trying really hard not to sound like a cliche, uh, my entire life changed. <laughs> you know, not immediately, but over the course, I was happy. You know, um, th- life wasn't easy. You know, but there was something to the something to the faith thing. You know, all of a sudden things started to make sense in ways they hadn't before. And this is as a teenager. I And there were some very smart teenagers, but I didn't have a lot of language as a teenager for this kind of thing. So I got involved more in worship music. And I think that I... Um, there was something really interesting happening in the 90s in worship music as well. You know, I'm sure you remember. There's just something really unique happening in worship music. And I really found like um, kind of a... Gosh... I don't know. I thought, you know, maybe I can take this worship music and I can create art within this format, you know. Because mm-hmm. I didn't listen. I didn't listen to a lot of Christian music growing up. I didn't listen to a ton of worship music growing up, but I got connected in worship music almost sort of as a side thing. It's not not that I didn't like it necessarily, but I think, you know, I was at church, I played, and then I didn't know what I wanted to do for college, so I went to a ministry school. And while I was in the ministry school, you had to write your own songs. Everybody did, or just if you were studying music? Yeah, you pretty much had to write your own songs if you wanted to be on the worship team. That was sort of the... Really? Yeah. And so I wrote some of my own songs. I mean, I guess it was more... Gosh. I guess there was a genuine passion there as well. And it's not like I don't have a passion for worship. I just think it's my what I consider to be worship has broadened so much. Mm-hmm. Since then, you know, I, I think more than anything, I, I wrote some worship songs and people really responded to the songs. And I thought, well, maybe I have something to say here. In my couple of years in ministry school, I really enjoyed learning about scripture and I'd say theology, but I don't even know that I dug that deep into theology necessarily as I just read the Bible and tried to understand how it relate. you know, what kind of life I was supposed to live. I don't know. Man, I think too, there was at one point, I felt like maybe there was a calling, like, I want to do something important. And I mean, honestly, I thought, man, people probably need my music. You know, it's yeah. such an arrogant, pious thing to think. But, you know, I thought, people really need my music. There are people who might die if they don't hear my music. I mean, I was in that <laughs> I was in that whole world for a little bit, you know. And I think now I feel differently about that. I feel like probably... God's going to do what he's going to do. And I think he'll let me be a part of it because he likes me. You know? Yeah. But I don't think he yeah. needs me at all. But I don't know. I've also learned, and this is sort of a side conversation, but I've also learned people, a lot of times the people who are the most successful at things, like really, really over believe in what they're doing. They're way too into what they're doing. 
oftentimes. That doesn't mean that's wrong, but sometimes to be super successful, you almost have to be more into what you're doing than maybe makes sense. You know what I mean? Then then is healthy. Then is healthy, yeah. (laughs) And I found that in all sorts of areas, you know. But so that might have been a part of it. When you really believe that what you're doing is really important, you put a high value on it. And I think I probably did that. Put a high value on it, maybe too high a value on it. But gosh, that's really interesting. What I'm having a hard time uh, articulating what it was that sort of like bridged the gap there. But I think I saw something in what was in worship music of the '90s, something that was happening there that I thought Mm -hmm. I could be a part of. I could find a place here with this. And then very quickly it changed, and I ended up signing a record deal, and I was outside of my little stream of what worship was, and I was like. I don't know that I like everything that's happening on the outside. What do you mean outside? Well, outside meaning like in my own little stream, there were some exciting things happening. I think creativity was highly valued. And uh, you could do weird things. And there wasn't a lot of judgment there. You know, at my ministry school and at the church I was a part of during those years, you were uh, encouraged to try, you know. If you wrote something that was weird, they'd be like, hey, I don't know how I feel about that. Maybe let's not do that, you know, but they wanted you to try, you know. I mean, we had, sometimes the worship leader played a sitar, you know, sometimes we had the <laughs> Marshall stack. I mean, we had percussion strings, all sorts of crazy, you know, things that you would not think of in worship today, Yeah, you know, and constantly trying new things, and it was exciting, you know. It felt like something important was happening. Um, if it was mysterious, you know, maybe that's a yeah. big part of it. I was trying to sort out the mystery of why did, why did I feel this way when I heard this type of music? Like why will all of a sudden, you know, and I would say that it was God, or the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And I think it was, but I think there's more to it than that. Um, you know, but I was sort of like, uh, mystified by the way the music made me feel, in context with sort of this spiritual conversation. Um, and so I think, I'd, even now, I think a lot about why music makes people feel a certain way. I mean, mm-hmm. music is like a, a billion dollar industry, I want to say, you know, and it's mostly sounds, it's mostly just bits of primitive information. Well, but it but it does. There's something I've I've read or heard this yeah. or I'm plagiarizing it from somewhere mm-hmm. and so whoever said it, I'm sorry. <laughs> but something about like um when we hear a, a music or when we sing music, like something deep inside of us gets syncopated with one another, like we become yeah. a whole as opposed to just individual parts of humanity. And that's it's a very bad metaphor. I'm not I'm not saying that well, but I think there's something so I sometimes, well, I try to lead worship at my church, and, and every once in a while something happens where I'm no longer singing. I'm just participating yeah, in, totally. something, in, in something bigger than, than, a, than a song or in an emotion. And that's still, those words still fall very short of it. Um, but there is something wholly innate almost in, in music, and I don't even know that it's the words. It's something in between the melody. Yeah. That... For me, anyway. Totally. Say she knows my name, but she don't call it out to me beneath the rubble like the way you say it. Weep like willows, break like waves we are. 
fragile creatures on collision with our judgment day. So what I can remember, so I was at Liberty um, after high school, and a lot of that 90s, you know, praise and worship, we've got to get the jars of clay, we'll get all the third day, let's, let's get all of the, <laughs> definitely yeah. DC, DC talk is, is you, have to, you have to do that at Liberty, um, which I can't really listen to hardly any of that anymore. But I can remember someone later on down my dorm listening to some of your music at the time, and I'll be honest, John, it, it didn't sit well with me. Something about it just didn't connect with me until about two or three years ago, honestly. So um, I was struggling with my faith and a lot of doubt and grief and uh, I guess a fracturing of my ego of what I thought was important and not really knowing how to put it back uh, together. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I Spotify recommended your songs to me, and so I said, let's go for this thing. <laughs> and ever since then, I've just gone down a rabbit hole. And so... Um, your music speaks to me in a way now that prior it really uh. didn't. It really didn't, and I don't know if that's I'm at a different place than I was now, or it doesn't really matter. But my question is: so when you write a song, what are you intending for people to get out of it, yeah, or yeah. or is it more for you to get something out of it? Um, I think it's both, and I actually think the more I think about music and why music is so important to people, is that music sort of this sounds weird, but music, like making music is sort of the practice of not being alone in the world. You know, like I think if you're, if you're listening to music, I think even subconsciously you're listening for other people and you hear a song and it makes you feel a certain way and you imagine other people feel the way you're feeling right then, you know, and as a writer, it's the same thing. Like I feel something, I'm going to put it out into the world and like, I don't know who it's going to be. Maybe it's just me later in life, you know? Um, but it's going to be, I'm hoping that someone is going to hear it and they're going to feel the way I feel right now. You know, at least that's the way I, I, I feel like I approach it is, is like, I don't want to say that it's not for other people. I think anything, all music is made to be heard. If it's not heard, then what's the point? Exactly. Yeah. What's the point? Music's made to be heard. Art's made to be seen, maybe seen by a few, maybe seen by many, or maybe just seen by you again later, or maybe just seen by God, you know, but it's like. Music is made to be heard, you know, so for me, it's like, I think early on, I didn't, I, I didn't understand myself, you know, I, I'm a little bit of a mystery to me. I would have certain feelings I didn't understand how to work through, so I would write songs, and not even that they would tell me what was going on, but it would, something about it, feel like, okay, I worked something out, now I'm satisfied, I can go to bed. Um, <laughs> looking back is really interesting, because I see those songs, I'm like, whoa, if you asked me what that song was about back then, I was like, I couldn't tell you probably, but now I can tell you everything that that song is about because it's it's almost like an imprint of who I was or what I was going through at the time, you know. But I'm so close to it back then, I can't see it, you know. Yeah. So, but for me, music was like therapy. Songwriting was like therapy, um, in a lot of ways. I had, I had, you know, went through some hard breakups, and you know, I had a close friend that I lost, and. During those seasons, I would stay up late at night and sing. I'd play and I'd sometimes worship, sometimes just write songs, you know. And so for me, that's how it started. It always started with like putting my finger on a feeling and saying, okay, what's going on here? You know, so really when I'm writing, that's initially what I'm looking for is a feeling. You know, what is, 
what is something that sort of pushes a button emotionally for me? You know, it could be a word or a phrase or something. And normally I'm like, okay, there's something there. Why is this getting to me? You know, why is this making me feel the way I'm feeling? You know, and I start to unravel that thing. And, but I think the hope is that you put it out there and it means something to somebody else and they sort of hear you and feel you. And I think that's, you know, what happens in music. I know even scientifically when you are in a crowd of people and you are singing with other people, you know, there's dopamine and oxytocin released in your brain. And you are actually chemically more open to other people um, hmm. when you're in a musical situation. You know, when you go to a concert... You know, if you go to a really good concert, there's people who are strangers. Who you Like, I remember, like, hugging people. Not even at, like, a worship concert, like, secular concert. You know, maybe they were drunk, <laughs> you know. But, you know, you just, you just, somehow you just feel so connected to these people. And it actually happens in your brain chemically. And why did God make it that way, you know? There's just something that happens in music that helps us to see one another, you know. Yeah. Helps yeah, us to see if- one another, you know. Yeah, and if you don't think that's true, then just turn on the Boston Red Sox when yeah. they play the the Sweet Caroline song, and the entire stadium's doing whatever. Nobody yeah. knows anybody, but they're all touching yeah. me, touching exactly. you, <laughs> holding hands. They are. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm curious. So I, I think a lot of people, when they go to church, uh, don't really know how to worship. And I've told my pastor this before, and I'm sure he'll listen eventually. Uh, but I often get more out of an interaction with God when I'm leading worship than anything yeah. that he says. Mm-hmm. Although lately he's been talking about Hebrews, and I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I know, though, for many people, the only worship that they really engage in, the only worship music they engage in is whatever's on the radio. And when I hear music like yours or like The Brilliance, um, or, you know, other musicians that are talking about Remedy Drive, you know, propaganda that, uh, regardless of genre, are really talking about things that seem to speak to the heart of the message of the Bible and the overarching gospel. You don't hear that on the radio. And yeah. so I'm curious your thoughts on why the worship music, quote unquote, that we have on the radio is entirely different from what I would think worship music should be. Yeah, well, I think there's a number of things involved. I mean, just the more like brass tacks, a little more of the crass answer would be that they've realized the people who spend the most money on faith-based music, you know, the people go to Walmart, Target, and pick up the records. Mm -hmm. Uh, The people who spend the most money on it are a certain age and demographic. It's generally um, middle-aged females, conservative you know, they actually, it's its really, you know, I hate to reveal all this stuff if you haven't heard it before, but in the Christian industry, they actually have a name. You know, they have, if you study demographics, they have names for different types of people. They call her, Be- they the call average her yeah, they call her Becky. She's the number one buyer of Christian music. She's, you know, in her, <laughs> in her. I, had, I don't think I had yeah. heard that. <laughs> but, you know, and so sort of you're allowed to do a number of things, but like, if you really want to like, you know, they tell you, if you really want to make the money in CCM music, like you got to write music and market music for, you know, middle-aged conservative females. I mean, and that's a, that's a real conversation people have, you know, it's not speculative. And I understand that demographics and stuff like that. But at the same time, it's also probably that, I mean, and, you know, I know some really amazing people in that demographic who are not like what the people selling music think of, you know, so that I don't want to be do a gross generalization, but generally they think of them as being somewhat conservative and easy to offend and having certain values. 
Yeah. And so they make the music based on that. I mean, that's what the radio, that's the, those are the people the radio um, exists for, you know, and those are the people that um, are most likely to listen to the radio. And so they cater to that group of people, and that's fine. But, you know, the church is made up of all types of different people. So, I mean, so that would be my first answer. This is the more like sort of, that's the more crass sort of to the point yeah. answer. But I think there are some other maybe cultural things going on. You know, I think sometimes, you know, the people who support Christian music would support it on a mission type, you know, base basis. It's not, they're not supporting artwork. They're, they're supporting mission. I think they want to hear like, are their lyrics saying the right things? Because I'm not going to support this. I'm not, you know, the lyrics yeah. aren't saying, and that's fine. The problem is uh, that, you know, I personally think that uh, language uh, or the lyric or the words, um, not that they're unimportant, but they're kind of the sheen on the surface of meaning. And so you can say a lot of the right things, but it's sort of like the the iceberg principle. Like when you hear something that you consider to be good, a good song or good music, you're sort of, you see the surface where you, you see the lyric, right? But what you feel is so much bigger than the lyric itself. It's so much bigger. And it comes from a different place, you know. So you can, you know, so... In sort of the world of uh, advertising or propaganda, you know, you would um, create music and then you would put the lyrics in there that uh, you sort of, these ideas you want to tell people about, right? Mm -hmm. Spreading ideas, but more so than that, it's sort of like propaganda or advertising tells people what to think as um, art invites people into a conversation. And if you're really good at it, Maybe you still tell people what to think, but you make them think that they came up with it. You know what I mean? So, so inception music. Yeah. My wife does that to me all the time, right? Does she? <laughs> yes. But you know, but that's, to me, that's the difference. And so you, you get a lot more of what would be technically labeled more, and this sounds so bad because I'm not so mad at Christian music, but you, what's, what's more likely to be supported is something that's more in the like propaganda where it becomes more of like advertising for Christianity. Mm -hmm. My only issue with that is that I just don't think that people need to be advertised, that Jesus isn't a thing that needs, he doesn't need a good PR campaign. When you're really honest, so let's say we're really honest, we're like, okay, if you're good, you're a good person and love Jesus, and you are still going to suffer in life. And that's a song that's I think needs to be sung, because that's something we all experience, right? It's like, why does bad things happen to good people i don't have an answer but i have to put it out there because it's real you know yeah you know we're like oh no we're not gonna put a song like that on the radio this is bad pr for jesus Th i mean you that's <laughs> i i would argue that's what people that's what people need to hear yeah, totally like that's that's what people struggle with and yeah. and i know for me music music helps me process things in a way that i'm not able to give voice to an emotion yeah. that somewhere in there Totally. Because, I mean, everybody has those experiences where they're, they're having a fine day, and then all of a sudden they drive over the road, and the right song comes on, compounded with the right memory, compounded with the argument that just happened while they were thinking about that, you know, whatever they're thinking about, and they just have to pull over, because it's too emotionally gripping, uh, yeah. and, and it rips you apart. And um, I feel like the world would be more compassionate if, if we had more of that. Bloody like my Savior King, you came to me. 
I'll admit that I not always had eyes to see Oh yeah, some kind of magic mirror Oh, come to show to me I'm God with my own face Oh, are you some kind of magic mirror? Oh, come to show to me I'm God in time and space Oh, I saw the What, I guess, theologically is the biggest change for you for over, say, the last 10 or 15 years? Um, well, uh, this is a little vague, but I think um, allowing myself to change. I don't know. Okay, so first of all, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I would maybe consider myself to be a little bit of um, an open theist in the sense that God doesn't change but my ability to see and understand who God is, you know, um, definitely does, you know. So I've allowed myself, like, it's okay to daily sort of reimagine who I think God is. Attempting still to, not saying that you can't find truth, but knowing that I don't always see it just right, you know. And so I think when I was younger, I thought there's going to be this set of things and I'm going to like latch onto this set of things and I'm never going to have to let go. But slowly, it seems like almost every one of those things are, have been challenged, you know. Mm-hmm. And I've found that if I just hold on to certain things just out of habit um, or just because I'm afraid to consider other options, it's, it makes life really hard, you know. All of a yeah. sudden, it's sort of like I become a caricature. You know, I'm like a Christian caricature. I feel like I've become a caricature of a believer. Like, I believe this. I can't tell you why, but I've just decided (laughs) that this is what it's going to be. You know, I'm like, you know, I don't think that God requires that of us. I mean, I think you got to be honest with yourself, and it's not like, I really want to, like, have some fun. So I'm going to just conveniently think about God differently today because there are things I want to get into today. That are uh, not consistent with the way I believed yesterday. See, I'm not talking about that. But tomorrow I'll go back to the way it was yesterday. I'll I'll repent. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But I am saying I give myself a little more room, you know, and I trust, if I'm going to trust God, like I can trust God to, um, I can trust Jesus to help me through bad theology, you know. But I have to allow myself room for bad theology. Because if you don't consider all the, if you don't consider, I guess there's maybe not enough time in life to consider everything, but I think you've got to consider multiple options in order to have some sort of real faith. If you just pick the first one and say, okay, this is it, you might be right, you know, but, Mm -hmm. but I got to believe that it's a conversation and that Jesus is guiding me through this whole conversation. So that's why I feel more comfortable saying I'm an open theist. Maybe that sounds a little bit, um, maybe a little bit strange to some people. And maybe people would be surprised for me to say that. But I like that. <laughs> I think that... I'm good with it if yeah. you are. Because uh, open theism <laughs> has has multiple ways. So there's the yeah. open theism like... Um, uh, the inverse of predestination, not that I'm forced into anything, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that God knows all the possibilities, mm-hmm. every single one, yeah. but doesn't force me to choose either, but yeah. isn't surprised when I choose any. Yeah. 
And then there's the open theist where, and someone asked me the other day, he's like, well, what, what do you think? He's like, assume you did your, you know, your, your faith work in a different country. Would you still be Christian? I was like, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know that I'm man enough to admit if I had been born in Syria mm-hmm. that I would be Christian or, or Muslim, or if I had been born in a different country altogether. Like, I, I wonder how much of my faith is because I happen to be born in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder about that too, you know? And, uh, you know, and I wonder, you know, how Jesus looks at, like, what is faith? You know, when Jesus said we, we have to have faith like children, I don't think he means that that faith is um, naivety is faith. Mm-hmm. Or uh, what do you call it? Gullibility. I don't think he means, you know, have faith like a child means you need to be as gullible as a child. I think what, yeah. I think what he's saying is that faith is a different thing altogether. You know, is that faith is yeah. something different altogether than an intellectual ascent. I think it's putting your faith in something. Once again, if if language is the sheen on top of meaning, mm-hmm. you could have the sheen wrong, a little bit off, not fully understand it, but the meaning itself be there, you know? And so I, you know, I wonder sometimes if, you know, and I'm not super familiar with this, but this is fascinating to me. Apparently there's a movement, like Christian atheism is a movement right now. People yeah. who intellectually consider themselves to be atheists but have a desire for the kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they say, well, intellectually, I can't ascend, but I do believe that, like, believing in these things make my life better and that there's something really beautiful about it. And I almost wonder if, like, just seeing the beauty in it, if that could be considered faith. And then again, I think yeah. about, like, Jesus. And I mean, I have all these ideas. I don't want to, like, spin out or anything, but, you know, I think about my children. You know, they're sweet and they're smart for children, but like they don't know anything, you know. <laughs> then I think about like my grandmother in her last years, you know, she lost her mind. She didn't know if I was my cousin, my uncle, my dad, or my granddaddy mm. at moments. My name changed. I remember taking her to a baseball game towards the end of her life, and she called me all of those people at different times. Mm. I was like, she definitely doesn't understand. And so like, are my children out of the club because they can't understand? And then is my grandmother out of the club because she can't understand? Or is faith something different? What if faith is living from a narrative? And what if the narrative, you know, language is evolving, right? And so Jesus, you know, I, I think, you know, his name was Yeshua, which I think is Josh. Mm-hmm. And that's why they called him Jesus of Nazareth, because they're like, yeah, Josh from Albemarle over there. You know, <laughs> his Josh is just is a super common name. It's not so much the name, because his name was super common. It was the narrative, right? It was, yeah. the, it was the place he lived from. And so if, if I can tap into that place as a believer, I want to believe you can tap into that place and maybe not have the name quite right. You know, and I don't want to claim universalism, but mm-hmm. I think that it's not so neat and tidy. Yeah. And uh, at the end of the day, I think, I still believe no one comes to the Father except by the Son. It's just the way the Son gets to us is up to Him, right? Yeah. So maybe He maybe He approaches me through the Jesus narrative, but maybe He approaches other people with the same narrative in different ways. I don't know, and people might hate that I say that, but you know, I want to believe that. I want to believe that you know everyone's invited, even if you don't fully understand the the language or the history or the, you know, the details, right? Yeah. So I'm not, who am I to say, you know, I'm a believer. Yeah, I agree. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I, I hope though. <laughs> you know. Someone asked me the other day what my thoughts was on eschatology, and I was like, I have no idea. But I hope, I really hope that everybody's there. Yeah, um, totally. If not, how arrogant of me! How arrogant of me uh, yeah. to think that to think that I figured it out yeah. somehow faster than someone else. How, how totally. arrogant is that? Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't seem much like uh, the God that I currently worship. Not yeah. even, not even close. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about the lightning sessions. Yeah. That album I love, and I like to interplay it with, and I don't know what the other album is because I've made my own Somebody Needs to Hold Me playlist when I'm struggling spiritually. (laughs) And there's a few songs of yours mixed in with a few others, the two of yours specifically. But on the Lightning Sessions, what was the hardest song that you recorded on that one? Like, what was the one that you're like, ah, this was easy to write, but I can't sing this. Or when I go to play this live... I, I, I just can't, you know, this, this is the heart, like you'll hear some people, like I've heard Bono say, you know, there's sometimes I can't hit the notes. And so I let the crowd sing. Mm. And I'm sure some of that's his voice. And I'm sure yeah, other yeah. parts of that are, I just can't sing these tonight. Is there yeah, a song yeah. like that at all on the lightning sessions for you? Maybe a little bit like that. I don't have a problem singing it live, but nothing stands between us was a hard song mm-hmm. to write, you know, mm-hmm. because when I wrote it, I really, uh, part of me didn't believe that, <laughs> you know, it's like nothing mm-hmm. stands between us, but it doesn't feel that way. I feel like there's a lot of things between us. But as I continued to write this, the song and sit with the song, I, I felt like, um, I was like, actually, no, I am, I do believe this. I do believe it. And for me, when I wrote the bridge, that's when I was like, okay, now I can sing this song honestly. You know, Mm -hmm. the bridge is a huge question. And so to me, it says like I can have these massive questions and still believe them no matter what. There's nothing between us but love. And um, but that one was tough. I think I had to come to terms because I have a really hard time and it's a kind of a curse. I have a really hard time singing a song that I don't believe. Mm -hmm. Even when I sing older songs, I have to tell myself, well, like this is who I was back then. It's like a baby picture, a high school photo sort of like I, that's who I was so I can own it because that's who I was but especially when I'm putting a song on a record I'm like I gotta I have to believe this fully not even that I don't believe technically nothing stands between me and God but I was really struggling with my faith during that record and it's like I really don't just want to throw a worship tune on the record as a token I want it to make sense you know I want it so to you think so you think nothing stands between us? Well, I mean, you wrote it, so you can think yeah, what yeah, you want. Sure. You, you you get to have the authority here. <laughs> so when I so when I talked about this, so there's the three songs of yours that I always mix in when I'm having an existential crisis mm-hmm. um, are "Monsters Talk," and then "Nothing Stands Between Us," and then I always end with "Future Past." And for some reason, that tells a story for me in a way that's reparative yeah. at the end. Uh, but the bridge specifically, and maybe it's the wave metaphor in each of those songs. Uh-huh. I forget the lyric in Monsters Talk. Uh, I can't think of the lyric, but I know there's waves in there yeah. uh, uh, as, you know, the stuff I'm dealing with. Uh, but the bridge normally, you know, in every song that we sing is so euphoric. It's so, yay, the Jericho <laughs> yeah, yeah. walls fell down, or yeah, yay, yeah. Easter's here, or yay, God's so mm-hmm. glorious. Yeah. As opposed to that one, you know, it sounds more like when I'm struggling, you know, have I, like I'm constantly trying to scale your walls in vain yeah, and totally. cross the sea. I just am yeah. pushing against everything I should mm-hmm. be. Yeah. Um, and then for me, I always end with, I can rest in, you were my first, you were my yeah, last. Yeah, totally. But that's, yeah. So 
Actually, someone at work the other day saw me jamming, um, and I was actually went into work late. And she's, yeah. "What were you listening to?" Yeah. She's like, we "We're trying to get your attention. We, you were just gone." Mm-hmm. I was like, and so I told her the story. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, "You're gonna have to send me the songs." And so I sent her those three songs. I was like, "Just go downstairs, turn the lights off, play them, and just think about God. I don't care who your God is, but just yeah, think yeah. about God." Yeah, yeah. And then tell me what you think. She came up in tears, and she was like, I oh, can't. Wow. She's like, I can't deal with that. I was like, well, there you go. Sorry I was late to work. <laughs> yeah, so, well, not to fan out a little bit, but yeah, thank yeah. you for that. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> you have written, uh, I, I, so I want to end with this. So you have sure. a Christmas album coming yep. up, which mm-hmm. is this your first Christmas album? Yep, or, it totally is, yep. Yeah, so so why? Why now, after yeah. all these years, write about Christmas? Totally. Well, I've always loved Christmas. It's always like a, it's super mysterious. You know, Christmas is like, there's hope and there's like magic. And then there's, there's kind of some sadness mixed in there. And then, then there's the annoying commercial side of the whole thing, you know, but it's always been a really magical time for me and time for reflection and introspection and you know, um, and so I've always loved Christmas and I've always, it's always, um, fascinated me when I think about Christmas and why I feel this way only around that time of year. Also, we, music industry tends to slow way down during the Christmas season, unless you're doing Christmas music. And so when I slow down, I get, uh, bored and I start creating things to do, you know, I always find, and so time off for me is dangerous because I will find, I'll dream up new ideas that I'm going to have to pursue. Um, and so every year around Christmas, or not every year, often I would call my buddy Everett and, and say, Everett, I'm bored. Let's do a Christmas song, you know. So about three years in a row we did that. We did a Christmas song for mostly for fun, and I think I gave them away. And Everett and I were working on the Mercury and Lightning sessions. He produced the Mercury and Lightning sessions, mm. and uh, we were having so much fun. And he's a he's a composer as well. He plays the cello. He's a string. He's an, he does arrangements, and um, you know. And I was like, this is so much fun. I was like, I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop working. Um, you know, he and I have for years have joked around about doing a Christmas album. I'm like, let's just keep rolling. Let's do a Christmas record. Let's do the songs. Let's re-record the songs that we've done together the last few years and do some new stuff. And so we just kept working through the Mercury sessions in one sense. It was sort of the process continued. Um, So we ended up renting a studio out um, up in the mountains for a few days, and we did uh, drums and piano stuff with some really amazing musicians from town. And then I'd track vocals in my basement and then send stuff up to him. And just like with the Mercury sessions, he would write strings and... Weird parts, and he lives in a college town in the mountains, Boone, North Carolina. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with the area, but there's a big music school connected. You know, they have a big music department, I should say. And um, anytime I need an instrument, I'm like Everett, where can I get a harp? Where can we get a um, where can we get a French horn? Where can we get a flute or an oboe? Everett's like, oh, I know someone, and just these college kids just <laughs> pull them in, just rope them in. You know, just go That's to cool. school and rope them in, and so. Um, we were doing that on the Sessions records. I was like, this would be such a great way to do a Christmas record, you know. So let's just do it. So that's kind of what we did. We just created this uh, super kind of mysterious, nostalgic, you know, happy and sad Christmas record. 
you know, with just ideas. And there are also songs I've wanted to cover for a long time that didn't make sense, but I was like, I think we could do this in a Christmas context. Like, What a Wonderful World. It's one of my really? favorite songs of all time. Um, Make You Feel My Love, a Bob Dylan song. Adele covered it. and Sort of like Bob Dylan wrote it, and then Adele covered it. So I was like, what do I have to offer that song? But I was like, let's do a Christmas version. It's kind of a Motown Christmas version of hmm. the song, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it's just an excuse to have a lot of fun and to explore <laughs> some songs that I don't know if we'd otherwise would make sense to record. And then my wife and I, it was a great opportunity for she and I to work together some more. She sang with me on several of the tracks and she covered a song called Silver and Gold. It's from the Rudolph the Reindeer soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And we discovered that Burl there's Ives. only Yeah, Burl Ives, there's only one verse in the song apparently. We thought there was a whole song. And then <laughs> they just put the first verse in the movie, but apparently there wasn't. There was and so we wrote two more verses to the song. Oh, so they only wrote one verse. Yeah, they only wrote one verse. As far as I can tell, we couldn't find oh. any more. If they had more, we couldn't find it. And so we just sort of finished the song ourselves, you know. And it's really cool because if you look at the lyrics, even once we were doing it, it was like, man, this song is a great song. When I printed the lyrics, I was like, if you take this literally and singing about how great silver and gold are, you know. I was like, this is not awesome if you take it literally. Obviously, it has to do with, there's a nostalgia, but it's singing about how wonderful silver and gold are and how silver and gold make the world so great and how much value to the silver and gold, you know. And I'd, I'd like to think that silver and gold are a metaphor for people, you know, a metaphor for our the short days that we have, you know, a metaphor for the years that you get with your kids before they grow up and have families of their own, you know. So we sort of stayed up late one night and wrote the rest of the song, you know, assuming that was the context for the song. And it's super beautiful and kind of sad. <laughs> That's you know, cool. I love it. It's 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 got to be one of my favorites on the record. And my wife sang it. She sang so good on that song. Her voice sounds great. So, um, yeah, and you know, and we get to explore. It's it's also the the baby son song. I think that was another reason I really wanted to do a Christmas record. Is that um, I wrote that song in 2013 before there was the type of political turmoil that we're experiencing right now, or at least I was oblivious to it if there was anything like what we're experiencing today. But, you know, and I I pulled the song out and uh, I looked at the words and I was like, wow, like this is actually like really appropriate for right now, Hmm. you know? And so that may have been like sort of the final reason I was like, okay, we're going to have to like, push and actually do this because i think people should hear this song like in 2018 yeah no well i i i I wholeheartedly agree considering that's the only song of that album that i've heard (laughs) um um so that so the christmas album is that is that what the week after thanksgiving is that right Mm -hmm. yeah it comes out actually the day it comes out on black friday actually so (laughs) so for those listening that was like two or three weeks ago by the time you hear this (laughs) um so in in closing mark where can where can people kind of engage in you like how do they interact with you if they feel like it where can they come and support you and buy your music come to your shows like where are you going to be at over the next few months yeah well um i'm going to be mostly in the studio uh writing trying to get ready for a new record sometime next year in uh in january we'll be in australia and new zealand um, I think I've got a show in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Um, 
but mostly we're international. So we'll be in the UK, Australia, New Zealand uh, early this year. But if people want to engage, uh, one thing people can do they don't think about very often is just hit the follow button on Spotify. Uh, really? If you're Spotify, yep. You get a lot more of the content when it comes out, you know, and their algorithms well, do that do now. cool things. Well, because a lot of people don't know when new music comes out now because it just music just kind of leaks now. So that's one way to stay <clears throat> connected with everything. We're, we're likely release some fun things before the new record comes out. May or may not even be a part of the new record. I've got some ideas. So, you know, so that mailing list, you know, the website, yeah. johnmartinmillen.com. Uh, the socials. I'm not on Twitter so much because Twitter these days is just so nasty. Hateful. Hateful. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, but I am on um, Instagram some and we post That's things cool. on Facebook too. But yeah. That's cool. Well, thank you so much for your time yeah, tonight, man. John. Yeah, thank you. For those of you listening in Australia and New Zealand and, and over there, and I know that you do, because I see the numbers. If John's coming close to you, go and see him. I, it's a fantastic concert. I've seen him twice in person, and both times was blown away. You're in for a treat, so uh, go go find him out on the website. You'll see that in the show notes. And if you have the chance, go. Yeah, I promise you, you will not be underwhelmed. You will be overwhelmed, and you'll leave with joy, and you'll leave with, with happiness, I promise. So do that. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes, please. That really does help tremendously. And I know every single other podcast on the planet says that, and it's because it's true. We can't all be wrong. I really hope that you all continue to have a good lead up to the holiday season of Christmas and that we all can sit with intention. I'm really excited for a Christmas conversation that's coming out in a few weeks. In closing, I'm going to lead you out with probably my favorite song. Uh, you heard John and I both reference it. Nothing stands between us, and so I'm going to let that play. And I really hope that you'll just quiet yourself and listen to these songs. Put yourself in the picture of someone yearning and searching for God, and just be held. I'll talk to you next week. A river of gladness fill my soul. Jesus, you're my greatest thought. God, I know. I see the light. I see the lightning. Inside the cracking thunder is singing Nothing stands between us Oh, nothing stands between us But love now Nothing stands between us Oh, nothing stands between us But love Take control. There's a cup of joy for every taste of sorrow. I see the light, I see the lightning, I hear your voice inside the cracking thunder singing. Nothing stands between us, oh, nothing stands between us but love now. stands between us oh nothing stands between us but love now 
Oh 